Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us on another podcast here. And, you know, we've been doing this series of conversations, I'm calling it for want of a better term, the Me Too conversations, given what we have has erupted in America um, around misogyny and patriarchy and now the latest with uh, Moore running for the Senate from Alabama and what he has, uh, what, what we found out about him, um, and starting with Harvey Weinstein, but way before that. But something has erupted in this country. What's really erupted, more, most importantly, is that there is not just a pushback, but a depth of consciousness that seems to be erupting around this that's really important. And the two of the brightest women I know have joined us here in the studio today um, that have been on the show before when we had our radio show, and they joined us now for our podcast. Uh, we're here with Dr. Desiree Melton, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Associate Director of the APA Site Visit Program at the School of Arts and Sciences at Notre Dame of Maryland University. Desiree, great to have you in the house again. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Dr. Annika Simpson is with us. Annika Simpson is a, PhD, is a uh, associate professor of philosophy, coordinator of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Morgan State University, where she's also co-chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Council. And Annika, good to have you in the house. Thanks for having me. This is great. So one of the things I said before we started was, and it's something I just really wrestle with a lot, just in terms of what we have to get through, given all we're facing here, is that we see how difficult it is for non-black America, especially white America, to deal with racism. And if racism in its depth has been around for 600 years or so with the onslaught of Western slavery, the enslavement of Africans by the West, but how it's embedded in the consciousness. Um, but misogyny and patriarchy are even deeper. They go back longer. Who knows? I mean, the debate can be, is it 1,000, 2,000, 30,000 years? Whatever that debate is, right? But we're seeing this be, stuff, we're seeing things unearth now that never really came to the fore, women standing up across the country. So, so I mean, where do you take this as both philosophers, thinkers, activists, mothers of daughters, and where this might, where we might be headed now after all this time? I think this is a pretty stupendous moment. I think it's a stupendous moment um, as well. And listening to you say that, it brought to mind the power and brilliance of queer black feminism. So when you're talking about um, racism happening for a certain period of time and patriarchy coming for a longer period of time, it brings me back to thinking about um, black feminist scholars that have been dealing with these issues in conjunction um, from the very start and not looking through like a singular lens, like let's deal with racism, let's deal with homophobia, transphobia, and then patriarchy or sexism um, on, a, on another um, path. Uh, so I think that there's some resources there to start thinking about these things um, collectively, the way that um, we can undermine folks' humanity in a myriad of ways, and then also look to uh, queer black feminists. I'm thinking like Audre Lorde's work and Sister Outsider, the Combahee River Collective Statement. Like We can look at the totality of the oppressions um, that people are facing and begin to work towards liberation um, for all people um, and the, the various manifestations of their humanity and their, their different um, identities. Mm -hmm. And just, just speaking about all of the assaults and harassment cases that are coming to light, and you said they were un they're uncovered. Um, they're uncovered, but I think that one 
mistake that people are making is in thinking that this is new. Because we're hearing about it does not mean that it's new. It just means that we're hearing about it now. And one way that, one reason why I think we're hearing about it so much now is because women are actually speaking up. And yes, they are mm -hmm. emboldened in the ways that Dr. Simpson said, that it's, it is definitely the work of the theorists. It's the work of the activists, but it's women actually saying something. Because we see what we see, are, what we see happening is that one woman speaks up, and then another one follows, and then another one. Hey, you know the the Me Too campaign. Mm -hmm. So they're being uncovered. These instances are being uncovered because women are no longer okay with being silent, and there just is safety and credibility in numbers. Unfortunately, sometimes not, but a lot of safety and credibility in numbers. So. It seems to me that you know when you look at human history that we have uh, <clears throat> there are struggles that move things forward, but there are explosive moments that change the nature of a struggle. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking you think about the civil rights movement in the '60s and the '50s, and it was the photographs of Selma that began to break the back of segregation in America, leading from the pulling the bodies out of. Uh, Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman to to, to Selma. These these the seeing what was going on changed in how people began to think about segregation. Maybe not about racism, but about segregation. Emmett Till, right? So that's I think we're in one of those moments. Given everything from Weinstein to Roy Moore, and what's being, I mean, because it's everywhere, and it, there's entertainment, but no, it's not entertainment. There's politics. It's the it's it's higher education. It's in the investment community. I mean, it's coming out all over. I mean, that's that's why I think we may be in a very significant moment mm -hmm. as we look in on this. Am I making too much of this? No, absolutely not. It's in all those places. Yeah, um, yes, um, I, I do think we're in a watershed moment right now. But I'm I'm wondering on a watershed moment for who. Because um, I know Jamila Lemieux wrote a really great piece um, uh, that I saw last week talking about white tears and Weinstein and thinking who gets to be the victim. Um, and it was very hard for her to empathize uh, completely with, um, well, I shouldn't put it that way. She empathized with all victims of sexual assault, but she was wondering why some victims of sexual assault are brought to the fore and others aren't. So, I mean, I think now it has become clear that when Lupita came out against Harvey Weinstein, that was the one part woman that, you know, his camp came out and said, oh, no, well, that didn't happen there. Um, and then she says, are mm -hmm. we valuing women of color um, in the same way that we are valuing those who are coming forward that um, uh, with these, these types of, of, of allegations? Because in her piece, she brought up R. Kelly. So I mean, just before, like R. Kelly did not, his, his exploits and um, I, I would believe um, abuse against very young women did not rise to the level that we see right now. Um, and so, I mean, I think for me, that's a very troubling, it's a very troubling dynamic. So yes, we're in a watershed moment and there are these women coming forward. Louis C.K. has been indicted. Roy Moore has been, hopefully at this point, Republicans are saying maybe trying to- Takes them a while to come it around. It takes them a while. <laughs> right, right, right. I think they're starting to come around. Um, 
But for me, it's kind of I'm I, I'm still looking at who's who is rendered invisible and in what communities is this watershed moment happening? Um, and I don't know if I feel it as much mm. in my own community. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't feel the same. I'm, of course, reading the New York Times or Washington Post general media. It is everywhere. Um, but I don't see that. Um, ubiquitous kind of talk happening in some of the black media spaces or black Twitter um, to the same degree uh, that I see uh, with these other with these other cases. I second that. I also find it troubling. Chris Brown, R. Kelly, I mean we can just keep naming them but I think there's so there is in a sense people who get excused and people who aren't believed and I do think that when we're talking about black women or the women of color, we're thinking about it, the public, is thinking about it very differently than they're thinking about it when it's a white woman making the accus accusations. And I find it troubling in just my radio station that I listen to. I find it troubling how R. Kelly's excused, how Chris Brown is excused. And there's coupled with, I think, a part of another part of the reasons that there's this man who's a genius, the sort of genius kind of complex thing where he gets an excuse or a pass because he's amazing at what he does. Um, that's also a problem. But I do think that we can't, we can't talk about the victims and the perpetrators as if we're all treating them the same because we're not. Some people are, more, are considered to be more credible. Some women are considered to be knowers and others are not. Knowers? Knowers is in they can actually that they have knowledge of their experiences and that they will be believed, mm -hmm. and others not so much. So that's, it, it's, it's a watershed moment, but it's a watershed moment for, a, for different groups and for others not. Hmm. So then what does that, then, what does that take where we are, do you think? I mean, I was thinking about this, something occurred when I was talking to a friend about this from out west, and, um, they were saying, you know, that the highest number of missing women in America are in the Native world, and that seventy percent of all sexual assaults and rapes of Native women are not done by Native men. Something we do not talk, mm -hmm. people don't talk about, mm -hmm. right? So that's been going on for years, and I think, um, as Winona Duke said. The other day in an article, it was a, for those listening, I'm not sure who she is. She's a Native American activist and scholar and thinker and economist and activist. Um, said, I'm tired of being invisible. I was being invisible. She meant Native people. <clears throat> being invisible. Because there's a whole body of women that nobody paid attention to at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, and so you're saying similar things, in a, right, about Absolutely. women of color. Pardon me, <clears throat> of, of black women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that well, let's take that then. So what does that take? This so, so, so let's take the missing part here, component. What does that take? Where we have to go, given you know what I'm saying? I mean, because it really is. This exploded because Harvey Weinstein attacked young women, all of whom are white except for one that we know about anyway, Lupita, right? Um, and then almost, and so almost all of this has been a sense around that world those worlds, white worlds. It doesn't diminish the pain and the horrendous nature of what's been happening, of what men have been doing. 
Mm-hmm. But so, how, how do we brought? I mean, how do we? Where do we take this now? Has to, you know what I'm saying? Can't be stuck there. We can't. Um, I mean, I think that's what the opening with the clear, queer black feminists. I mean, I think. I mean, we can go back to 1892 with Anna Julia Cooper and a voice from the South who was pleading with black men um, to accept black women on equal terms and then also looking at her white feminist counterparts. I mean, we have had centuries-long conversations, Mm -hmm. um, which I think we are still in the midst of. I mean, even with the Me Too campaign, I mean, that was, I think Alyssa Milano was a tweet, like Me Too, and then you had many black women saying, okay, that didn't come, that hashtag did not come from Alyssa Milano. It had a black woman as a source. So (coughs) even within that movement, having women of color, black women saying, hold on, you know, you need to include us. I mean, I think there's that continued, I mean, in the midst of this watershed moment, there's still engagement with our, um, white feminist counterparts um, to say how are the ways that what you're doing is impacting us? Are you lifting us up in the same way that, you know, you're looking to us to lift you up in in this struggle and make sure that you don't render us invisible? Um, so, I mean, I think that's, it, it's, I'm very hopeful. I mean, I, I, st- I still mm. have hope <laughs> that, that, um, we will reach a better day. I mean, but I, I do think this is like from this is not a new thing. I mean, I think this is just a moment in um, a very long historical legacy of uh, black liberation work um, by women um, in trying to confront black men who want to uphold Cosby and R. Kelly and Chris mm-hmm. Brown and don't Mike Tyson don't tear down our men. Right. Um, and on the other hand, you've got. Um, white women uh, that are advancing women's causes um, that may not be uh, inclusive of um, our racial diversity. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you're talking about is you know, intersectionality. You're talking about how gender and race form different different experiences. So, and I think, and yes, and so when you have, when you have black men protecting and apologizing or you know for R Kelly or Chris Brown and then saying yeah don't turn don't tear down our black men they mean the race the black race so men become the the stand in for the black for black race and that's that's not okay um just like black women started the black lives matter movement but it really became a black men's lives matter movement we talked a lot about the men who lost their lives to police brutality. We talked about the men who had been assaulted by police. But we, with black, it took black women repeatedly saying, you know, women have faced police brutal- brutality too. And actually faced brutality at the hands of black men. So, you know, can we, can we talk about what's happening with us? And there's a way that black women become invisible in the black community when it's perceived that black women are going against or not supporting or tearing down black men in the name of racial equality, that we're somehow doing a disservice to the black race because black women are asserting their equality as black women. And that's, that's where it gets complicated and different from white women's issues. So, 
there's a couple places I'd love to take this, but let me try if I can get to one at a time. Um, let me pick up on what you just said, and I'll come back to the whole black and white women issue and focus on the march that took place right after Trump was elected, because that's emblematic of some of this, I think. But let me come back to where you all where you all just took this conversation, <clears throat> so that. If patriarchy itself, I mean, it knows no racial or cultural bounds in this world. But because of the nature of class and race, the meaning of it and how it plays out are different in response to it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, both white and black men can respond negatively to being pushed on this issue. But the reasons for it and what that means are very different. <clears throat> like you were talking about the Black Lives Matter women, the Black Lives Matter movement started by three black women, but then it clearly began, it became a male movement after that, mm -hmm. a male-dominated movement. So, that's, so that, this, is a, this is where it gets pretty difficult to parse out. It's why people have such a hard time kind of figuring out where to take the movement, the conversation, and the struggle around this. Yeah, I mean, I think if we can think about <clears throat> the racial movement um, from a gendered lens, um, and maybe this is where I become that nerdy academic. So in a certain <laughs> sense, I do like thinking about how how does race impact gender or gender norms? Um, and then how does that impact like respectability within the black community? So what does it mean to be a respectable black woman? And what do you need to do? What role do you need to play? Um, in order to do that. So I mean I think now there's, you know, we're trying to move away from respectability politics, but I definitely understand the roots of it. I mean, when you're always sexually available and seen as someone that's not um worthy of um your own physical autonomy and needing consent. Um so I can see why you would want to put up this shield of I am a lady, I am very respectable. Um and then you fast forward to twenty seventeen and like what are the vestiges of that as you're coming out of enslavement? Um and taking up these gender roles and what that means for the for the race. Um, and then now if you're coming in and trying to kind of destabilize that, well, let's talk about what it means to be a woman. What does it talk about to be a gentleman, to be a black man in this country? How do you perform that masculinity? Um, it, it's it's very complicated, but I think it's also, it, it's, it's um, ground for some really useful conversations that don't have to be too heady, I mean, or too, um, they're not impenetrable, I think. I mean, I think they're things that we can hopefully can sit down um, and, and talk about. Because I know in my barber shop after Moonlight came out, mm -hmm. um, I was very, my barber's quiet, and now I'm kind of quiet. So we talked quite much. Did you see that movie? And he's like, what movie are you talking about? So I kind of got picked up on other barbers in the shop, and I ended up at the end of the day filming um, a short talk that they had a little barbershop panel talking about masculinity. In the shop you, where you get your haircut. In the shop, yeah. And then they were quiet, like, I saw that movie, or I saw that wow. movie. So, I mean, for me, it was, um, when you talk about where do we go to get these, I mean, I'm, I live in D.C., so, I mean, this is a very D.C. neighborhood barbershop, and to have six black men that watched Moonlight, um, and to hear them having a very nuanced conversation about what is it these to be a black men. man. Mm -hmm. For the most part, yeah, yeah, um, <coughs> favorable, somewhat mm -hmm. favorable. I mean, it was real. Some, some, some f bombs were dropped, but the one barber that was doing the most said that he had a gay brother. You can't mess with his brother. 
you know? Um, so there was love there, acceptance there, but then also, I mean, that's why I say it's very nuanced. And um, did I solve all of homophobia? No. <laughs> but I think it moved the needle a little bit. And mm-hmm. I heard about a transgender woman that comes into the shop sometimes and that she's treated fine and with respect. Um, so that that was a moment where I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, there's hope that we can talk about these things outside of the academy or university classrooms. Um, yeah, with our neighbors, friends, and, and neighborhood barbers and, and hairdressers to see how gender and race go together and how they can serve to undermine um, the life prospects of women. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm, for me, this is a difficult conversation. These have all been difficult conversations for me, just because on multi-levels. Um, but when you look at... So the majority of white men don't like women telling them what to do, period. The majority of men don't like women to tell them what to do. And so, you know, for generations, it's okay for a man to put down a woman in public, but not for a woman to put down a man in public. But white men don't have to worry about being diminished as men the way black men have to worry about the diminishment as men, the way we perceive all that. Right? So that, so that, that to me, that's this is, if there was a way... To, to create a conversation that got to the heart of this, so people understood its complexity and could begin to accept all the kind of nuances of this. That's the nomenclature today is intersectionality, you used the word a moment ago, right? I mean, cause that, that to me is like, how we get to that point. It's part of a struggle. I mean, it's not something you just do, like it's like an academic conversation. Um, but I mean, to me, that's where the struggle has to go if you're gonna make people really understand the nuance of that, because people don't get it. Men don't get mm-hmm. women, and white folks definitely do not get what it means to be to fight the part of the black world and the black struggle for freedom mm-hmm. and equality. And so getting at the root of it, I think, is getting at the construction of masculinity and femininity. That's what it's about, and this is what Dr. Simpson was talking about when she was talking about how black women have been perceived, always sexually available, right? never innocent, black girls sexualized, seen as older than they actually are, um, never respectable, close to the animal. I mean, you just, you name it, how black women have been constructed, black femininity. And so sure, it makes sense that we would want to embrace respectability. If respectability means you'll treat me as a human, then I'll be respectable. But of course there are problems with that, right? Um, if you think about masculine, how, masculinity and how it's been constructed, and then if you think about, I'm sorry, toxic masculinity. Masculinity mm-hmm. does not have to be toxic, but it is. And if you look at toxic masculinity and how that has affected all of these different fields that you mentioned in the beginning, um, entertainment, the academy, politics, then you're looking at how toxic masculinity has played out in power. That's what's happening here. And so I think that the way to address it is to construct it differently. It has to be constructed differently. And we've talked about this before, I think, you and I have, Mark, where we talked about how it's how boys are raised. It's how men, t- 
teach boys to be boys and then be men. It, it, and you know what? And that also, also goes along with what you said about they don't, men don't like to be like women to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Fine. Then have another man tell you what to do. <laughs> right? White mm-hmm. people don't want black people to tell them what to do. Well, then fine. White people, you tell other white people what to do. And I think that's sort of how it has to go anyway, in large part. But masculinity and how it's been constructed as toxic, which feeds into rape culture, which feeds, it feeds into the way the experiences that women have in all these different fields where we're underrepresented. And this is pr- another reason why I think you find so few women CEOs. Men don't want to be subordinate. They don't want to be told what to do. I mean, how, how many men did you hear say that they, they can't imagine a woman being president? She can't be telling people what to do, right? So I think that may be, that's the place to start. Realizing that there are different masculinities. That yes, black masculinity does not look like white masculinity. Black femininity does not look like white femininity. But it's but both masculinities and others are toxic. And that's the issue, I think. I I agree. Um I was wondering with with Dr. Melton, um and this is where I, maybe I'm I'm less optimistic. I don't want to get in trouble cuz I No, it's all right. Um, on the t- masculinity versus toxic masculinity, because I've really been thinking if masculinity is a redeemable um, identity to to keep, because to me it just seems like it's constitutive of um, domination. Like when you ask people, what are the feminine traits? Soft and you know nurturing, or what is it to be masculine? And it's um, strong and domineering and in charge or aggressive and then I see that uptake like with a young MA like a um, young MA young MA is a female queer rapper um, okay. very no, masculine I'm sorry. Yes. Right, yeah, right, right. Oh, yeah, right, right. very masculine identified but some of the lyrics that come from young <clears throat> MA and I think in her uptake of masculine identity takes up um the toxicness that you're that you're talking about um and it it does make me wonder or with female masculinity which is another type of masculinity like so when women embody masculinity um i think some of that toxicness comes with it where you may think it would be tempered um and see and this is it's gonna i hear I don't quite recognize myself sounding optimistic because I'm usually deeply cynical. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think when I also when I think about queer groups and how I, I have seen women embody masculinity that's not toxic, and so I think that that's possible. I don't know if it's possible always. I actually I actually don't think that's possible always or even most of the time. But I don't think that masculinity has to be toxic. I think that you can have a gender dynamic where maybe there are different roles and maybe how someone gender identifies is going to look very different with their partner gender identifies in a in a different way. So I don't think it has to be. I think someone can take on a more dominant role without being domineering. And that's what I'm thinking about when I think about masculinity. I don't think it has to look the way that it does now. I'm not very optimistic that it's going to change dramatically. Because here's what I also wanted to say, because I think that this, the way the masculinity has been constructed to be toxic, I think it suits a lot of the disciplines where you find women underrepresented. So when I think about philosophy, for example, and how few women are in philosophy, and when I think about how academic philosophy looks, very adversarial, antagonistic, you haven't done your job if the person isn't crawling out of the room on the floor when you've just destroyed their argument. That 
that masculine approach to dialogue, coupled with the fact that philosophy is all about the intellect and reason and it's in your head, and this is not something that women, especially black women, can do, supposedly, right? This is not how we have been constructed. Then I think you just, it, it, feeds, it feeds into the reason why this discipline is probably going to look the way that it does for, for a really long time. Because the way that these disciplines are constructed supports that kind of toxic masculinity. And I'm not even sure if increasing the numbers is going to make much of a difference unless the way the discipline is carried out changes. So when I think about what a CEO is supposed to be, the characteristics of a CEO, right, and the characteristics of a surgeon or the characteristics of um, someone working in Silicon Valley, when I think about the characteristics of the philosopher, I think of those as typically seen as very masculine in a way that's incredibly disturbing. And so I think that has to change, too, if we're going to talk about changing these interactions with, between men and women and reducing harassment and reducing sexual assault. Cutthroat Hollywood, cutthroat entertainment, also masculine. So, so many things have passed through my head as you all were talking. <laughs> I went off on a little bit. <laughs> no, I liked it. <laughs> Me too. Um, I was thinking about a conversation I had the other day with a woman who's a professor at another university about this idea I've been working on about cross-campus classes and how you get people from different campuses to kind of be in the same and, and get away from the, in some ways, toxic nature of male-dominated institutions that say, this, my institution only, can only be here and you can't, you can't cross-pollinate things and do things. And then the words, she, two words she used, um, uh, well, I'm just going to say something she doesn't mind, but Nicole came from UMBC. She, she used the words, we have to develop a cooperative, collaborative relationship make these things work. And so I, ever since she said that, I've been, I've thought about this before, but I really started thinking about it even more. When she said this, thinking about, <clears throat> and I wrote to her a note and saying, that is a traditionally non-masculinized way of looking at work and looking at what we do. Mm -hmm. Right? So it seems to me that when we talk about how society can change it's understanding because uh, the whole world of what gender and sexuality is, it's, it's we're getting to understand how much deeper it is than just these two words and yeah. one or two things right yeah. but, but knowing what the power of women do to change the nature of society and how that can change the nature of society. But that, and that's part of what I think the revolution that's happening at the moment is we can't quite see it maybe, but that's what's happening. I think the deeper work on with that is having a valuation of the feminine, which is why I think Dr. Milton's point about it's not just about bringing more women into the boardroom, because I have friends in corporate America. Um, I am a philosopher that to survive, you have to adapt, and you mm -hmm. have to become that. Uh, that's already in that discipline in order to succeed. So just bringing in more women that are going to behave in the same way mm -hmm. is not going to change the dynamic, but it is how do you get to that cooperative, collaborative space um, is not denigrating the different ways and rhythms that um, some women can bring um, in our institutions and in our, in our workspaces. 
but we see that as weakness. So, I mean, that's, that's a, how you make that switch because that's how that's coded. I mean, mm. I think that is when you get into that too, that mat. Cause mm-hmm. In my ideal world, these things are not even coded as masculine and feminine. Right. I mean, you're strong, you're aggressive, right. you are maybe more quiet, but that doesn't need to get labeled as blue and pink, which is what we like to do. I mean, every, right. all of our traits and comportments and mannerisms, professions are ordered by the blue and the pink. And I don't mm-hmm. really know if we're going to get too much further until we can um, get past that, which is why I like the female masculinity or drag kings and drag queens. When you see people exploding or gender nonconforming people that are confusing to a lot of people, because when you can't put a person in their pink or blue box, we go mm. nuts to the point of killing them. And we kill gender people who transgress these norms um, uh, which is it's horrifying, but it's what it's what we do um, mm-hmm. to maintain kind of these fictions of this is how we're supposed to be. It's encoded in our very being and not really seeing how that we construct these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we do need to value value the feminine so we don't have that hierarchy between the masculine and the feminine, and ultimately get past labeling mm-hmm. with our blue and pink boxes. Not knowing we can learn from people who have accepted stepping outside the blue and pink boxes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That we're frightened to learn from. Mm-hmm. And don't have language for. Like, I don't have language for right. that third gender, fourth gender, no gender, five genders. Um, whatever number that is. Whatever number that it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, um, that's what I mean when I think that we're in a. Pl- See, I think something is being unleashed. I don't know where it's going, but something is being unleashed. Race, gender, questions are being thrown out here like they've never been thrown out before. Not in thousands of years anyway. Mm-hmm. Not since they've been repressed and oppressed mm-hmm. and beaten down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's where I think is going. I think about um, conversations I've had with people it's, um, that I know in the native world in come some of the cultures where they have the Winte culture, right? You know, the, the where there's a there are certain Native people who believe not all of them do, but certain people do, and some of the Navajo or Rapo or some other places that there's a there are people who just don't fit into the binary molds, and they're allowed to be who they are. Agenda binary, right? Two spirit, right? Two spirit people. It's not right. way to put it, right? Two spirit people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we can learn from that. And I so it's 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 this. That's what I think in some ways is is kind of changing the nature of who we are and can change the future for your little ones and my little older ones and yours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really you know, it's, I mean, that, yeah, that, yeah. It's a heart, and I always say I'm not going to do it. Once she hits thirteen, I'll stop. <laughs> but my oldest is gender nonconforming. She's very masculine identified girl. And I've let her do that because uh-huh. I'm this progressive mom. So if you wanted to shop in the boys' section, that's fine. No dresses, no skirts, no pink. We're good. But now she's into lipstick um, or blush or, like, playing at home. She's not going out and, like, Mac at, at her age right now. But that's I've had to think about that because I put her, my girl was put in a blue box. So then when she starts trying to do things that I put in the pink box, even for me, I'm now like, how progressive am I? Because now I'm confronting this confluence of her uptake of different identities and expressions in a way that's it's not normal, it's non-normative. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, I mean, these things are really, they're really hard. I mean, you know, I'm saying the ideal, I mean, I think just to confess for myself that I'm not, like what I'm saying, I want to get beyond the boxes, but they're very comforting. I got used to my pink baby and toddler became very masculine identified. And now this masculine identified young girl is like, okay, but I want to get my nails done and I want to wear, you know, um, lip gloss too. And putting those things together. Um, so I had to talk to her, like, what am I doing? Like, do you feel pressured or to keep wearing boy clothes? Like, mm-hmm. do you want to start wearing girls? She says no. Um, but I don't even know in my, in my quest to be this, you know, ultimate liberal mom, <laughs> if I have done the same thing that, you know, that I'm telling other folks not to do with maintaining this binary. Does that make sense? Like, even mm-hmm. outside of what people would think is normal with how you dress a girl. So how do we, so if, all right, to take it beyond a world of people who are wrestling with this stuff and help the rest of the world wrestle with it, I mean, that's a part of me, maybe, but I think that that's really important. Because um, you know that, you, you watch what goes on with the Harvey Weinsteins and the Roy Moores and the R. Kellys and Cosby and whoever else and you can name in this world. Um, and the very racist ways we deal or don't deal with those various people and, and the people that, that, that they have attacked. Um, but we also know that there are also realities of existence. Oh. By that I mean mm-hmm. the collaborative and cooperative is a way that we have to look at the world if we're going to move it ahead. On the other hand, violence is as much part of existence That's right. as collaboration is part of existence. They're and real dangerous. Right? They're real dangerous which is where we began to get these gender roles, maybe, that they began to shift. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, I think, and I think men have to wrestle with what that means. You know, I mean, look, I'm a man. Um, and being a leader and being str- physically strong is something that is inculcated in you as a man. You got to be that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be that way, but if certain things come at you, you want to you, you want to make sure you're that way. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then that can spill over into domination and control, mm-hmm. and spill over into doing whatever I want to with whoever I want because I am this, right? right. And that's where you have to begin. We have to begin to really attack what is learned to change the dynamic of who we are, which is really hard to do. But I think we're at a place where that discussion can happen. I, maybe I'm being naive again. No, I think these conversations are happening, yeah. And I was thinking about um, that I think you can assume a role in a relationship that is gendered. But I think it matters who your partner is. So let me just say this. So there are these studies that have been done that have shown that lesbian relationships are the most egalitarian relationships compared to gay men or heterosexual couples. Now, you can have a woman in that lesbian relationship who is male-identified or masculine and the other one who is cisgendered, but it's still egalitarian. And so this is what I was thinking about when I was saying, I think that you can still have these masculine traits, but I don't think they have to always be toxic. 
So there could be, for example, so let's say, for example, that the more masculine identified one is the one who does the household chores. The other one is the one who works outside of the home and makes the money. I mean, so and maybe the more masculine identified one is the one who's decided to stay at home and raise the children. I think that you can have, right, some very stereotypical feminine roles, but the masculine identified woman would be the one to do that. So I think that that there's that it just, just doesn't have to look the way that it does now. And I think that be, we're thinking about it in a way in which it has always looked. And it's hard to think about it as not masculine is not being toxic. But I, I don't think it has to be. I don't think it has to be. And I don't, but I think having these conversations and letting ple- people play with the gender roles, letting children, because and children are much more open to this than we are, absolutely. I've had conversations with my nieces who are in elementary school and they use language like trans and queer and questioning. Uh, this, these words, I mean, I didn't know these words 20 years right, ago. That's right, right, right. So, right. Uh, so I would be incredibly cynical to say that there's not going to be progress. There is progress. I, I don't know where it's going to go, but right now I'm quite happy with where it's going. There's a lot of conversation about it, and there is a lot of people playing with those different roles, those th- the different gender roles, the combining feminine, you know, the pink with the blue. And and I think talking about these these ways that gender has been played out that are outside the binary, like Native American two spirit, is one way in which those things can happen. Becoming more comfortable with people not accessing those traditional labels to describe who they are and how they operate or move about in the world. I think that's 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 integral. Just a quick digression made me think of when you were talking about two spirits. There are a lot of brothers I know in the Native world who uh, have been Christianized and they don't believe this stuff anymore. Religion. Now you raise the specter <laughs> of religion. <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> you know, um, so if where we've taken this conversation and coming back to the point where we where this began really, which is that the world of kind of male domination and and ruling women sexually is very real and has that's what has to be unearthed here i mean we're talking about ways things are changing but that's really so deep in men and uh, people kind of obfuscate the issue by saying well women do it too yeah i get so tired of that because yes right. of course that's not even the issue. Right. That that it's. I mean, I. The numbers of women I know who have been assaulted or attacked. It's got to be almost. It has to be most of the women that I know. It's not like this thirty, forty percent number. It's most right. of the women I know. It's every woman in my family. Every woman in my family. I think we brought up religion. One of my favorite ministers. Um, I'll say Reverend Cedric Harmon of Many Voices. Um, he referred to himself as a walking social justice movement, and I, I've taken that. But I always say I'm going to give him credit. So I mean, I think part of when I say the barber, when the barbershop, I bring up masculinity. I mean, woe to my Uber driver, because somehow I'm always trying to bring things to the other person that happens to sit next to me at a bar. Um, if I hear something to start engaging in conversation, um, and I think having, because we're moving like a glacier, it's not going to be this quick oh, no. movement. Right. But I think for each person to have small moments of conversation to spark, and then other, uh, for folks to feel um, 
brave enough to even just think about their own gender roles. Because, I mean, you really are going to the core of who people think they are. Um, and I think it's just inviting that, that courage to say, okay, well, how, like, what is it with, you know, the jewelry that I have on? Or why am I wearing my hair this way? Um, and is it okay for that person to have short hair? Is it okay for that woman not to have on jewelry? Is it okay for that man to really prefer to stay home with the kids while his, you know, partner goes out to work and not, because I always say that the more you control us, you're also controlling men. As you say, yes, I'm strong and I have to be this certain way as right. a man. I mean, God help the men and boys that do not perform masculinity in the way that we say they're supposed to, because that's a very hellish life that they live. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that's my one of my hopes for the world, that people can just step back a little bit um, and know that the world will not crumble just to start thinking about gender and how men, if you are a man, may have actions that um, negatively impact women. Because I know some of my students, at first I thought they were um, being disingenuous, but it's happened over the so many semesters that many of my young men in my women's studies classes don't know when they're sexually harassing a woman. Like, they don't know that cat calls are harassment. Like, there is a light bulb. Like, I remember one student, like, what? Like, they don't like, but they smile when I'm yelling at them. And then the, the young women in the class, like, Cause I don't, when I don't smile, I'm called out of my name. Or when I don't smile, I'm afraid that I might be assaulted or I have been assaulted. So for them, it's a light bulb moment in understanding that it's survival. When you smile and say hi and kind of keep walking quickly, it's not. But for them, it's reinforcement of what women like to be talked to this right. way. Right. And so it's a very right. – so I have some – around consent. Um, well, it really is that, well, she said she was coming at 2 a.m., so that must mean. And a very genuinely, well, that we all know that's what that means. And it's like, no. Um, so, I mean, I think there is some learning and unlearning that needs to, needs to happen. So I've gotten more patient with my young men that are 18, 19, 20, who are coming to me in college, like, having no idea what harassment, why you can't grab a woman in a club, why you don't hit them on the behind. Like, that, that is harassment, and they don't see it that way. That's just the dynamic. Yeah, and I think I'm teaching philosophy of sexuality right now, and th what I'm seeing, and I'm porn has a role in this. Porn definitely has a role in this, and it was you're talking about the the things that you're discovering that your young male students did not know, they did not know that those things were harassment. Likewise, I'm finding that some of my students did not know that it's not a typical end to sexual intercourse with a man to have him ejaculate on your face. But they thought that that was, because that's what porn tells you. And a lot of children are learning how to interact mm -hmm. with, with the opposite sex through porn. So I'm not going to get on my soapbox about sex education, all that stuff, but I do know that, I mean, porn is available now in ways that it was not. It's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. ubiquitous. It's it is everywhere. It's not just the magazine, the dirty magazine under, right. you know, someone's bed. So all this, all a, all a child has to do is to log on and see it, and they're gonna if they have not been introduced to healthy sexuality before, that's the sex that they see, and so it would make sense. It does make sense to think that if that's all they see, then that's what they know, and they would think that that's appropriate, that those behaviors are appropriate, and then of course we have these protective behaviors like smiling and moving on. You know, you know why you look so why you want to smile? Okay, I guess I better smile. You know, so I don't want to get you know assaulted or harassed. That those are reinforcing behaviors. And 
but they're but they're protective behaviors. And then so if you have those behaviors that are seen as reinforcing, and then you have the way that these men and women are being exposed to sexuality is so troublesome, then it's going to contribute to this toxic mix. It's going to contribute to men thinking that they're the strong one that's supposed to take it, that the woman is going to refuse, but then you're going to wear her down, that she's going to want to be right. beaten when she's having sex. You know, she's, she's going to cry out, but that means you just keep going. That means she's enjoying it. All of those things, I think, contribute to that I got to be strong, the way that you're describing, I got to be strong. I got to, you know, take care of business. I got to, all of those things. So it's a, it's a, it's a jumble of things that are create that got us to this place that we're in now. So what you, it's funny we all just took this because it was where I was about to ask the question and didn't have to ask the question, which is really good. <laughs> <laughs> which is the power of what you do as teachers in changing and, and in, making people think about who they are and what they do and, and what that means. If you do it in your classes in philosophy of sexuality, you do it in your classes in women's studies, how important this is beyond, again, you're in the, the people are in the confines of, your, of, of a particular course description and going beyond those confines to force us to wrestle with things that we don't want to wrestle with to change. That's part of what I think makes the change. Yeah, and, and shows like this. I mean, I, I mean, it's always around Thanksgiving. Well, we're coming up on that. I know my students are going to come back and tell me about all the fights they had with their fathers, oh, yeah. their grandmothers. Like, I told them what you said, and then uh-huh. my grandmother said. Right. So I know. Like, you got me in trouble. You got me in trouble. But I love our girlfriends that are then fighting with their partners. They're coming mm-hmm. back with their fights. and not, not literal fights, but their arguments and debates in the residence halls. And I'm like, okay. And I always tell them, you don't have to agree with me on everything I would like, though, because I think I'm right. But <laughs> I do want them to expand their thinking. So when they right. come, when I see evidence that they have gone out into the world and tested some of these things out and then come back um, and report, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened. I mean, that's also where some of that optimism does come from, because mm-hmm. it's even with those students who are, you know, 18 to 22, usually you can they're still able to, to shift and change a little bit. Um, and that's a win. Or listening to shows like this and saying, okay, well, let me, um, we were driving right now, like, let me just sit and think. Mm-hmm. You know, why am I behaving this way? Well, and it sounds like you're out there in the public doing things. And I feel that I, I do that too. I think that public philosophy is incredibly important. It's, it, can't just, it can't just be on the campus. I do think that these that the shows like this are important. I think that going out to the community and talking is really important, which is what I like to do. Um, so, but you're right. The word gets spread. Conversations happen. Uncomfortable conversations, heated conversations, um, but expanding their thinking is is big, and that's ultimately I think that's what has to happen. We have to expand our thinking, challenge our notions of gender, gender roles, challenge our notions of what it means to be a man, to be a woman, and I think the transgender movement is helping this tremendously challenging gender expression and you're right it's not going to move quickly but but in some ways it has moved pretty quickly when I just think about the past 10 years and how we're talking about transgender and, and binaries I mean that's that's a lot that's happened in 10 years so I don't know how when or how we're going to get to the place that we want to get to but 
I think that now, like you said, like there's this watershed moment, at least, at least the conversations are out there, that we can continue, if we continue to talk about it, yeah. actually let me back up a little bit, because when, Americans hate talking about race, hate talking about it, don't even want to say black or white, especially white people. White people don't want to say black, you know, they say, or white, they say Caucasian, you know, when they're feeling really uncomfortable. But, but with, we, we've started to talk more about it, and there's been even more conversation about it since the election. Right. And so I think that there's there's going to be more conversation about sexuality and gender roles the more women come forward saying that they that that they have been harassed that they've been assaulted. They're going to keep the conversation going. That has to happen. A lot of things have to happen, but I think that those things are are crucial. And now that these Republican women have come out saying I voted for Trump, but Roy Moore did this to me. What's important, <laughs> and you still voted for Trump, which is amazing to me. But, um, but what now that has to be translated into a larger conversation about how that extends beyond race, and that narrative has to go beyond where it is. But it's important, I think, in some ways, for these women to have said that, mm-hmm. for us to get to a place, because of this weird, stupid world that we live in, which is full of, kind of because of the depth of racism stuff in America. It almost takes that sometimes to force us to go somewhere else. And speaking of another it's thing, how uncomfortable it is to think about. Yeah, speaking of another thing that's important, and you know, it's because this weird, stupid world that we're in. But why? I think it's important that Mitch McConnell said that he believes those women. But I think we also have to ask why is it important that he said he believes those yeah, women? Right. Why does he have to give his blessing? So this is what goes back. This going back to my credibility and who's a knower. Now, now that this man has stepped in and said. I believe them, then other men can then say, okay, so I guess we can take these, these claims as credible because a man has backed them up. That's a problem. And the need for um, the, the numbers, like the, you need a collection right. exactly. of voices. I mean, you right. still need five women said it or six women right. said right. it. What is right. the tipping point? I'm not the, sure what right. it is, mm-hmm. right. but there is this right. number that we have to get to before people go, okay, I guess they're not all lying. They can't all be lying. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, here's another thing that people have to understand when we're talking about conversations and and educating, they have to understand why it takes some women so long to come forward. That's nothing that people misunderstand. They, they think that it must be made up because it happened 30 years ago. No, that means 30 years ago it was even harder to say something. I mean, just think about what 1991, Anita Hill. Think about how hard that was for her to do. Right? So it's, but when people hear that it's taken that long for someone to come forward, they think that it must be fabricated. It must be some story. Not understanding that the way the nature of this beast is that it takes a while, takes other, and it takes other women doing that with you before you have the courage to be able to say something about it. And even playing, oh, no, playing into uh, what's all that's caught up in gender roles and expectations of women, because I purposefully avoid. I found Roxane Gay, the the novelist and memoirist, on Twitter, so I knew her through her tweets. And I knew the sexual assault that happened to her as a child, um, and I avoided her books, like I, because I, it's hard for me to read about that. But I finally picked up Hunger, and that's the I think encapsulates what you're talking about, why why it takes so long to see what the trauma that she had as a child for her not to go home after she was gang raped and tell her family, like how she got through dinner that night, mm-hmm. right. I don't know. 
but the expectations of what a good girl is because she's like now I'm a bad girl so I did something obviously to invite that to happen to me and that processing like that 14 year old with Roy your child like how is a child processing that trauma and what that means and am I a good girl versus a bad girl and expectations and how am I going to you know be vilified by my community will I be believed and when you see the way we drag women um, through the mud and malign their character and go through their, I mean, their histories. Mm-hmm. Um, go through their wardrobe. What were you wearing? Why were you there? What time? Why were you in the what woods with those boys? It? Yes, all of those things because it's your fault. Um, but it was a very powerful read for me to finally get through hunger. Um, you just did that. Just a couple weeks. I finally finished it a couple weeks ago. I finally read. I, f- wow. I finally read it. I wanted to wake my kids up, like, please tell me. Like, there's nothing. And even in communicating that, there's no good girl, bad girl. You know, to let them know that they are not um, inviting any type of violence upon them um, is another conversation, I think, to have maybe within the, the family unit and mm-hmm. convey that. Um, but it's not a safe space to come out. We see, why in the world would I come right. out against anyone when you see splashed? Part of that watershed moment is we can see on this, it's very visible how we treat women that come forward. We're not nice. I mean, it's not a cuddling like, oh, right. come Even with here. this, we're not nice. Yeah. Right, no, yeah. right, right, right. Right. Look, I mean, yeah, and just quick add on, look at what happened to Anita Hill when she came out. She so was a little right slutty and a little nutty. That's right. what they said about her, right? right? So why, Slutty why would you, and nutty. Right. Why mm-hmm. would you invite that upon yourself? And it's awful that we have to say it that way, but that's, that's, that's how you would see it, right? Like, I don't want, I don't want that, this, the assault, the trauma, that was bad enough. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to have people talking about my history and all these other things. And it's, why would you not avoid it? That just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting arc that we should really explore some point. Starting with Anita Hill and bringing us to this place we are now. Mm, that would be. We'll do that next time. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I'm really so happy you both had the time to do this. Of course. Yeah, thank you so much. It's good to have you both here. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and share it with your friends here at Stanislaw.org. Dr. Desiree Melton, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Associate Director of the APA Site Visit Program at the School of Arts and Sciences at Notre Dame of Maryland University, and Dr. Annika Simpson, Professor of Philosophy and Coordinator, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Coordinator of the Women and Gender Studies Program at Morgan State University, where she's also Co-Chair of the LGBTQ Advisory Council. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast. <laughs>